Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our little preaching service. This is Galen down at the gym. We had a little issue getting started, so uh, you probably noticed we're not starting quite at 8.30. We're starting at 8.45. And, um, yeah, so I'm down here at the gym. Eldon, obviously, is down here running the sound and all that stuff. And Colleen is here, and Grayson and Sophie. So it is... uh, And I'm sitting down at a table, which kind of makes me feel like a talk show host, actually. Um, See if I can rustle my papers and bang them on the table a little bit. So yeah, I wish I could see your faces wherever you're at this morning. Um, Hopefully, all over our church community, um, there are little gatherings happening and everyone is able to kind of stop everything they're doing because it's a little harder to do at home to stop everything and put it down and um, give full focus to God's word and worshiping him. I have never preached in this kind of circumstance, obviously, but uh, God can use any kind of circumstance, and I'm hoping that uh, he will speak to us this morning. So we will start here um, ready to go. All right. Well, I'm going to start with a prayer, so let's pray. Dear Lord, just thank you for this morning. I just pray that you would bless this message, bless our study from First Peter. Pray that it would speak to us, help us to be um, attentive to what you have to say, open to your spirit. Just bless each family In our church this morning, each person dialed in or listening later, just pray that you would speak to them. In Jesus' name, amen. So this message is from 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'll be reading from verse 1 through 21. And I'm reading from the New King James Version this morning. Um, And the reason I picked that version is just out of hopes that the majority of you would be using either a New King James or a King James version this morning, just so that it would make it easier to follow along. So if you happen to have one of those translations nearby, you might want to just pick it up quickly and so you can use it as a reference just to keep keep track of uh, where I'm at. This passage is... 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 21. First two verses are a greeting to pilgrims, he says. Verses 3 to 9, then, are what is in store for pilgrims. Verses 10 to 12 talk about the amazing plan of salvation. Verses 13 through 21, how pilgrims ought to live. And so what we're going to do is... um, Well, different times call for different measures, so this message is going to be a little bit different from what I usually preach. First of all, I've got an assignment for you all that as we work our way through this passage, uh, you'll see that Peter uses a number of expressions to constantly remind his readers of this simple fact that we are on a journey and we haven't reached the end yet. And I want you to As we go through this passage, I would like you to be on the lookout for words or phrases 
that Peter uses to remind his readers, basically, we're not there yet. I found about eight or nine of those in this, these first 21 verses. So if you have a, a pen or pencil and paper, um, yeah, you might want to do this little assignment. Keep track of, of the little expressions Peter uses to remind his readers they are on a journey. We're not there yet. So that's an assignment for you adults. And then for the children, I thought that, um, I'm going to be reading just a few verses at a time, and I thought that after some of these readings, I would stop for a bit and talk to the children. Kind of, but not really, like a children's class. I'll just be talking to the children so that they can hopefully stay involved and keep track of where we're at. Um, okay, so everyone has their Bibles, and hopefully you've got paper and pencils and other stuff, and um, hopefully you can hear me all right over the phone, if that's how you're dialed in right now. And I'll go ahead and start reading this. First Peter 1, and I'll just read the first couple verses of introduction. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, 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 Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. So I want to talk to the children a little bit. Good morning, children. Hopefully there are some children out there. Does any of you know what a pilgrim is? Since I can't hear you, I'm going to assume you don't. Although you might quite well understand what a pilgrim is, but I'm going to pretend no one knows what a pilgrim is. So I'm going to tell you about a group of people that we usually think of when we hear the word pilgrim. This happened a long time ago. Uh, in fact, this summer, it will have been about exactly 400 years ago that this thing happened. 400 years is about as long as some of us feel that we've been cooped up in our houses. Back in July of 1620, about 65 people over in England, which is far away from where we live, right? England, far off. 65 people packed up their belongings, some of their belongings, and walked onto a boat called the Mayflower. The Mayflower was a cargo ship. Uh, it was actually of Dutch design. It was called a flute, F-L-U-Y-T. That's all I know about it. It was a flute. And it could haul about 180 tons. Anyway, they, they got on the, this group of people we call pilgrims. They got on this boat. They sailed down the English Channel. They met another boat called the Speedwell, which is not really a very good name for that boat because it kept springing leaks. Maybe it should have been called the leak well. Finally, they gave up on that boat, and a lot of the people who were going to sail on the Speedwell crossed over and ended up on the Mayflower. Finally, September 6, the Mayflower set sail for America with about 130 people on board. And these folks, we call them pilgrims, because they were leaving England behind. England wasn't going to be their home anymore. Uh, they weren't happy with things in England. They, um, they were looking for more religious freedom, and they decided England is not going to be my home anymore, and they started on this journey across the ocean. 
And while they were traveling across the ocean, looking out at all the waves and the water and all that, they knew that was not their home either. They were looking ahead to the west to a home they would eventually get to. It was not a fun trip. They finally arrived in November, so I guess they were sailing for about two months. And it was not a great time to arrive in the Massachusetts area uh, with nothing there waiting for them. This is kind of where the analogy breaks down because uh, only half of them actually survived till spring. But that's what the word pilgrim means. It's talking about people who are on a journey and far from home, and they've got a destination that is not here. And in this letter, Peter says to his readers, you are pilgrims. He is calling the Christians he's writing to pilgrims. And the reason he calls them pilgrims is because we are on a journey. Our home is in heaven, not here on earth. So when we look around, we should remember this is not home. Okay, so done with that children's class. Just for the rest of you, a little commentary. Um, Peter obviously is writing. We know who Peter was, is. Writing probably in the early A.D. 60s. He might be 50 or 60 years old. He's writing to pilgrims or strangers of the dispersion, he says. And the Greek word is diaspora. It's originally used to refer to the Jews who were off in exile. The Jews who were in exile because of, for example, the Babylonian captivity. And now he's using the word diaspora to refer to Christians. So he's not just talking about, he's using a word that had been used for Jews in exile to refer to Christians. Why? Because Christians are sort of in exile. We're, we are long, in a long, long way from home. What does he say about these pilgrims? He says they are elect, they are chosen by God based on foreknowledge. Now he doesn't say foreknowledge of what? doesn't say what God is knowing. He doesn't even say it's foreknowledge of us as individuals. It could be foreknowledge. I think it's referring to foreknowledge of how the plan of redemption would work, that redemption would be necessary, that it would be done through Jesus, that there would be a body of Christ, there would be, you know, a Mayflower, you might say, and that those who are in Christ are part of the elect, based on foreknowledge. We're chosen in Christ in sanctification, set apart by the Spirit, having the Spirit is what makes us different. And for, now it's a little interesting to notice what he says we were chosen for, what he mentions and what he does not mention. He mentions the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, which if you look at the Old Testament sprinklings, those would refer to cleansing, sanctification, entering a new covenant, the... the um, well, it wasn't a new covenant, it was the old covenant. <laughs> but back then, it was new to them. It was when the children of Israel decided they were going to uh, do all that God commanded. They were sprinkled with blood, entering the covenant with God. So we were chosen for that, being in a covenant with God, receiving the blood of Jesus in our hearts. We were also chosen for obedience, to be a people that obey God and are are representing God to the world. And it's interesting that he doesn't mention heaven here. He, yes, we were 
chosen. That's the outcome of, of us being uh, pilgrims and chosen by God. But it is not the, you could almost say it's not really the main point here. Uh, there's much more to being a child of God than just having a ticket to heaven. And then let's go on to these next couple of verses here that talk about blessed be God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So I'm going to talk to the children a little bit more again. So in the first verses we just read, we saw that children are called, not children, Peter calls Christians pilgrims. You Christians are pilgrims. <clears throat> and in this passage that we just read, we see that Peter says, well, you pilgrims have something wonderful to look forward to, and he calls it an inheritance. Basically, what he's saying is Christians have a special reward that belongs to them that they have not received yet. So people who believe in Jesus have an inheritance or a reward waiting for them. And the word Peter uses here is reserved. Peter says it is reserved in heaven for you, meaning it belongs to you. It is kept safe. It's got your name on it. No one else is going to get it. So if, and here's how I might use the word reserved. If there are four pieces of chocolate in the candy drawer at our house, and Sophie has one, and Grayson has one, and I take one, but Colleen is not around, I might say that last one, if I'm being a good husband, I would say that last one is reserved for mom. You can't have it. It's hers. And I'll put it in a safe place. Now, a number of years ago, just uh, to carry on with the illustration of what reserved means, a, a number of years ago, I was about ready to board an airplane, and all of us passengers about to board were in a line, and there, I don't know if it still works this way or not, but there's a, there was a machine that you would feed this piece of paper into. That, that piece of paper that each of us had was what you call a boarding pass, and on it it says, Galen Yoder gets to ride on the airplane, and he has a seat on that airplane, and it's reserved for him. <clears throat> so we would, we would feed these uh, pieces of paper into a machine, and out the other end of the machine would come a, a little snippet of paper that said, and this is Galen Yoder's seat number. So we were in line and we were putting our little boarding passes into the machine and getting our seat numbers out the other end of the machine. Well, the lady in front of me did this, put her pass into the machine, zing, and out the other end came the seat number she was supposed to have on the plane. But she kept on walking and didn't grab the seat number. That was hers. And uh, I saw it happen, but I didn't say anything because... That's just what I do, I guess. I don't say things like that and correct people and, you know, shy guy that I was. I put my boarding pass in the machine and, and moved on. But, but then she suddenly realized her mistake. And so she turned around and, and took two steps back and grabbed the seat number that was mine. It came out of the machine. 
And I still didn't, and it happened so fast, I still didn't say anything. But hers, the seat number that was hers was lying there at the, somewhere, and because she hadn't gotten hers, and I just grabbed hers and kept on going, because I like, all right, it's fair, we know we each got one. <clears throat> but it wasn't quite that way, because it didn't work out so great when I got on the airplane. Here, she was sitting in her seat, because she apparently remembered what her seat number was, and mine was, well, I didn't even know which seat I was supposed to be sitting in anymore, I'd forgotten and so I had to talk to the steward, and sure enough, this kind of was a big deal to them, and they called back to the terminal and said, is Galen Yoder supposed to be on this plane? Does he have a seat on this plane? Well, sure enough, I did. It was reserved for me, and after that all got straightened out. That kind of confusion won't happen in heaven, by the way. After that got straightened out, I got in my seat, and, uh, and I survived that experience. So Peter says, you have an inheritance. Christians have an inheritance reserved for them in heaven. And there's not going to be any mix-up. So back to the adults, just a little commentary on those verses we just read here, 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, why pilgrims are so fortunate. Now, now, just give me a second here to remind you, in case you didn't catch the assignment that I had for you, the assignment was to jot down on a piece of paper, what words or phrases does Peter use to remind his readers, basically remind them, we're not there yet. We're on a journey. We're not there yet. The things around us are temporary. Just, just watch for those and, and uh, jot them down. Anyway, back to what I was going to say about these verses here in verses 3 through 5. Peter's talking about why pilgrims are so fortunate. They have received abundant mercy, which is why they are begotten again, why they're born again, because of God's abundant mercy. If we didn't need to be born again, we wouldn't call this an act of abundant mercy. But we really did need this new birth. And the outcome of it is that now pilgrims have a living hope, an inheritance, and the power of God doing something very important. <clears throat> so the living hope is based on, I think it is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think about how Peter must have felt when he saw Jesus die and how crushing that must have been to him. And I'm sure he felt just like those, those uh, guys on the road to Emmaus who said, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. But then he saw, they knew that Jesus had arisen from the dead. He was alive. And so then they had a new hope, a living hope. As it says in verse 21, God raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And, and this is the basis for our hope, not just for eternal life, but also for a new and different kind of life here on earth. Pilgrims are fortunate because we have a living hope. We also have this inheritance. It is incorruptible. It's not going to go stale. It is not like, I don't know if any of you had takeout this week or not, but you know what happens sometimes to the leftovers. You put them in the back of your fridge and you think you're looking forward to having them for lunch tomorrow, but you forget about it. And then a few days later, you open up this mysterious styrofoam box in the back of the fridge and realize 
that sesame chicken is not incorruptible and it has grown green fuzzies and it's kind of gross now. But our inheritance is not incorrupt. Our inheritance is incorruptible. Our eternal life also will not wear out or get sick and eventually just end. It's incorruptible. It's also undefiled. It is perfect. It won't be polluted. And so in a world full of defilement and ourselves full of flaws, our inheritance is not defiled. It is unfading. It won't become less amazing with time. And like we said, it is also reserved. You, you don't have your, your reward yet, but it is safe and no one's going to take it. And then the third thing that pilgrims have going for them is this power of God working on their behalf, keeping them shielding them, that's the, the Greek word can mean shielding or guarding, kept by the power of God through faith, Peter says. So God is at work to protect his pilgrims through faith. It, it is contingent on our having faith in him. So I don't believe in unconditional eternal security, but I do believe that while we have faith, we will be kept by the power of God. All right, let's read a few more verses. Verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Okay, I want to talk to the children a little bit more. Uh, Peter has said so far, you are pilgrims. Christians are pilgrims. Okay, remember what pilgrims are. You have an inheritance reserved for you in heaven. Christians haven't gotten that inheritance yet, but we do have something right now that is very, very valuable. What's, Grayson and Sophie, what's the most valuable thing you have? Here, you come say. What is the most valuable? You know what the word valuable means, right? Okay, they're, they're conferring. What is the best thing you have? You can just come tell me and I'll, I'll tell the people. Sophie, what's say it to the mic? What's the best thing you have? What? What? What's the best thing you've got? Like, what's your favorite toy or your favorite? Um, what's the best thing? Love a Bella. Love a Bella. That's your doll. All right. Very good. Grayson, what's the best thing you have? Miss Rex's yoder. All right. That is his uh, stuffed rabbit, which he has with him right now. Okay, so when I was seven years old, I'm not sure exactly what was the most valuable thing I had. I had a pocket knife um, that I really treasured. It was yellow. It was sharp enough to cut me quite well. Once it, I shut the blade on my finger. 
I also, when I turned seven, I got a, a bike, and that was, oh, that was amazing to get that bike. Oh, very valuable to me was that bike. But one of the, in this world, one of the most valuable things that you can have is, um, talking about worldly things here, is gold. Gold is very valuable. In fact, if you just take two quarters, stack two quarters together, or maybe three, that's about the size of an ounce of gold. If you had just that much gold, that would be enough to buy your dad a MacBook Air and your mom a, um, uh, a, a new sofa, a couch, or a washing machine, or whatever. Um, and so an ounce of gold is worth about $1,600, and I think a MacBook Air is running around 1000 these days. I'm not sure on that. Although maybe, you know, Peter says, uh, live with your wives according to, uh, to understanding, so maybe I should give Colleen the MacBook Air. But if you believe and trust Jesus, your faith is more precious than gold, is what he's saying here. If you believe and trust Jesus, it's that faith is more valuable than gold. It is a precious thing. It's precious to God and to us. And so we need to live in a way that protects that and grows the, this faith that we have. And, of course, God will be doing his part, too, to grow us. When I was a boy, I got a, a bookmark from a Sunday school teacher. It was a metal bookmark, and I believe it actually, my impression was that it actually had some real gold in it, a tiny amount of gold in it. And I think there was some verse on it. Maybe it was this verse talking about our faith being more precious than gold. So back to the adults, just a few comments on this, on this passage. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. So he's meaning, in, in this salvation that you have, in, you, have, you, you have reason to rejoice, even though you have been going through some trials. And I'm assuming they were facing some persecution. In spite of your various trials, and they are grievous, you're grieved by them. Uh, the trials are not fun, right? That's why we call them trials. They're painful, but he calls them, he, he reminds them, they're for a little while. They are little while trials, and, and, um, and there are some positive things about them, a couple positive things to notice here. One is that it, it proves that our faith is genuine, and, and I think also in another sense, it makes our faith more genuine. It has a refining effect on our faith, and secondly, trials will result in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as it says in verse 7. Now, who gets this praise, honor, and glory? Peter doesn't actually say specifically who he's talking about. Is he talking about God getting it or us? Now, certainly, it would make a lot of sense for the praise, honor, and glory to go to God because um, he certainly deserves all of it. And it should be our goal to bring glory to God. And, and showing genuine faith during trials does bring glory to God. And that, and that fact should cause us to rejoice. You know, uh, even if I am suffering like Job did, my faithfulness um, is bringing glory to God and also frustrating Satan. So that is, uh, that's actually a great thing, and that should make us happy. Uh, and that's the truth we shouldn't lose sight of during trials. By being faithful, 
by being as faithful as I know how to be, a, a wonderful thing can happen, which is that God is glorified. But the other way Peter may be meaning this <clears throat> is he, he may be talking about us receive, saying, because we have been faithful during trials, we will receive praise, honor, and glory at the coming of Jesus. And I think that could make sense too. In fact, some of the more dynamic translations like the New Living Translation would say, you will receive praise, honor, and glory. Now, the more literal ones leave it unclear because I don't think it is actually clear if it's us or God. But the Bible does say in other places, saints will be glorified. Uh, Later on, Peter talks about that in chapter 5, talks about receiving a crown of glory. Romans 2.10, there will be glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. And hopefully Jesus will tell us, well done, good and faithful servant, which is the best kind of praise you can hope for. So it's not talking about us being worshipped. It's talking about us receiving a reward of praise, honor, and glory. But whichever way Peter, Peter has in mind here, we can safely say this about trials, that, yes, they are grievous. They're not fun. They're painful. But they can also do us good. Um, they're good for our faith. They bring glory to God, and we will be rewarded in heaven for being faithful through them. And so pilgrims can find reasons to rejoice even during trials. All right, let's read verses 10 through 12. I don't have much to say about these verses. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. Who prophesied of the grace that would come to you? That is, the prophets, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So I don't have too much to say about these verses except to repeat some things you already know, that salvation did not happen by accident. The sufferings of Christ, the glories that would follow, as it says in verse 11, that was planned a long time ago. And being able to look back at the writings of the prophets and see, for example, Isaiah's writing about Jesus and say, that was about Jesus. Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. That is a blessing to us. And so Isaiah when, and the other prophets, when they were being faithful, they were serving us. So when we get to heaven, it'd be great to say to Isaiah, you know, I was born 3,000 years later than you, or I'm not sure exactly what the time is, but... Um, Anyway, thank you for your service. Your faithfulness blessed me. And hopefully, someone will come up to us and say something like this. You know, I was born after your time, 50 years later or whatever, but your, your faithful service blessed me. Let's move on to verses 13 through 21. And that that will be uh, all that we're reading this morning. Therefore, 
gird up the loins of your mind. So now this, up to now, he's been kind of laying out the, the facts of their situation. They're very fortunate. They're pilgrims. They're very fortunate. And here's the response they should have. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him and believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So considering all that you have going for you, you pilgrims, be mindful. Gird up the loins of your mind. And in those days, long robes were common. If you were going to do anything very active, they needed to be hitched up. And Peter is saying, do that mentally. Kind of like we would say, roll up your shirt sleeves. Be mentally alert. Christians need to be thinkers. And I'm not talking about thinking deep philosophical, theological thoughts. I'm talking about just thinking about what God expects, what God wants, what is, what is right. Would this please God? Would this not please God? Is this taking me in a, is this is this helping my faith or is it going against my faith? Christians need to be mentally alert, ready for action. Be sober. This is another mind thing. Don't be mentally drunk. Be self-controlled. Be hopeful, he says. Rest your hope fully. Be obedient children. Don't act like you used to when you weren't God's children. Be holy in all your conduct. Be fearful, because your Father will judge you someday. And you have received something extremely precious in the blood of Jesus. How are you going to handle it? Are you going to be responsible with that? So be, be fearful or sober. Now, you're really supposed to, you know, when you have a sermon or, or a talk, you really should have one main point with some nice subpoints that fold up neatly under that. That didn't really happen this time. So I've got nine little lessons from First Peter to leave you with. And I think I've commented on all of them in one way or another already, but we'll just go through them here right now. So number one, the number one lesson from First Peter chapter 1, and we only went through verse 21. The number one lesson is that Christians are pilgrims. And I said at the beginning that Peter uses a number of expressions to remind his readers of this simple fact, that we are on a journey and haven't reached the end yet. So I don't know if you're done with your homework yet or not. Do you have a list of expressions or phrases that Peter uses to remind his readers that we're not there yet? 
So here's the list I got. The number one, obviously, is the word pilgrims in verse one. And then in verse four, he says, reserved in heaven for you. In other words, it's reserved. you don't have it yet, but it's reserved for you. So we're not there yet. Verse 5 says, ready to be revealed. It's not been revealed yet. It's ready to be revealed. We're not there yet. Verse 5. Verse 6 says, for a little while. So this thing that's going on around us isn't forever. We're not there yet. Verse 7, at the revelation of Christ. Verse 8, now you do not see him. You will see him someday, but we're not there yet. Verse 9, the end of your faith. Verse 13 says, the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. Verse 17 talks about the time of your stay here. So those, maybe your list is a little different from mine, that's fine. Those are the reminders that Christians are pilgrims. We are on a journey. It started with a new birth, which is obviously a beginning. You never call the birth an ending in itself. You know, it's a new birth. It's a beginning. When we were born again, it was the beginning of a pilgrimage because now we have a heavenly father and a heavenly home. So you could also call us aliens. And, but we are, we are pilgrims, and Christians can easily forget this fact. And I think that's one of the reasons why Peter uh, had so many reminders embedded in these first few verses. He was concerned that his readers maintain a pilgrim mentality. Because if we forget that, it changes how we look at trials. It changes what we put our hope in. It changes how we conduct ourselves. We won't act like pilgrims. You know, we won't act like uh, pilgrims on the Mayflower. Maybe we'll forget we're in the middle of an ocean. How do you not forget? Well, one big way is to have people, or, or mature Christians around you, like Peter, who can remind you that we're pilgrims by their words and their example. They can remind us we're pilgrims. We should pay attention to that message. And of course, the flip side of that is we ourselves need to be careful that we're sending that message and that we're not sending the opposite message by not living like pilgrims and sending a message to our brothers and sisters, which is, we've arrived. Settle down. Enjoy yourselves. So Christians are pilgrims. Let's not forget that. Number one, that was the number one lesson. Number two lesson, Christians have a living hope. <clears throat> and this tells me that, you know, we, we really should be, um, in general, we should be optimistic people. We have a hope. We have a living, eternal hope. We do have an obligation to keep that hope healthy. Verse 13 says, Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So don't start resting some of your hope on something it shouldn't be rested on. Don't rest it on something that has nothing to do with eternal life, nothing to do with God. And we need to be on guard against diluting our, our living hope with temporary um, kind of aimless hopes. Christians have a living hope, lesson number two. Lesson number three is that Christians have a stunning inheritance. It is reserved in heaven for us. The fact that it is incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading tells us that it is better than anything we have seen here on earth. 
There are beautiful things here in this world because God created it. You know, the sun setting behind the peaks of otter is gorgeous. But, you know, none of those sights, none of those beautiful things that we, we see on earth, can we say that's incorruptible, undefiled, or unfading? You can't say any of those things about anything we have experienced here on earth. It's, it's kind of outside of our realm. So I'm, what I'm saying is the, the inheritance we have in heaven is, is, I think, a little bit unfathomable for us. It's outside of our realm of experience but it is stunning, it is amazing, it is wonderful. <clears throat> it will not go downhill. It's reserved in heaven for us. We have a stunning inheritance. Verse number four, I mean, lesson number four, children's, Christians, I mean, Christians are kept by the power of God. Verse five talks about that. I think that's an important lesson for us to remember. The English Standard Version and the New American Standard use words like guarded, or protected. Um, and it's just so good to remember that making it doesn't just depend on us. It's not like God just shoved us out into the water and he said, good luck, sink or swim, we'll see what happens, you know, and then the rest is kind of up to us. It is not that way. It's a good thing to remember when trials seem overwhelming. It's not just up to us. God is working to protect us and keep us. And and all we need to bring to the table is we need to hang on to our faith. But we should expect God's grace and peace to show up. Just look at Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. You know, the verses that talk about make your requests known to God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. That, that's the same word there, guard your hearts and minds. Same word as, as the word that's used here in 1 Peter, verse 5. We are kept by God's power. Lesson number five, trials can perfect our faith and produce future reward. That's in verse seven. doesn't mean God is responsible for all our trials, but we know, as it says in Romans 8, 28, that God will use them for our good. A, a genuine faith is a precious thing, and trials can be part of building that. And as it says in Romans 5, we also glory in tribulations, knowing that Tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. And, of course, we would love to have all of those things, perseverance, character, and hope. And I would like to have them without the trials, but often it doesn't work that way. So trials can perfect our faith and produce future reward. And, um, you know, yeah, so let's keep on going. Number six, Christians should be joyful during trials. And uh, Peter obviously expects his readers to be rejoicing even during the trials they're going through. Paul talks about it, obviously, in Romans 5. We just read that. We know that James commanded it, count it all joy. And I don't know that we need to literally say, hooray, it's the coronavirus. But we can still, even, even though we're going through this, and the coronavirus in some ways is not a very big trial, at least not for... Um, my family, it's, you know, a bit of a headache. But you know, we can all see that, that uh, hopefully we can all see that some good has come from it. And God can use it for good. And we can praise God for the good work he will do in spite of it. Christians should be joyful during trials. Lesson number seven, Christians need to be mentally alert and sober. 
We were redeemed from aimless conduct, as it says in verse 18. Mentally dull people start to behave in an aimless sort of way because they've lost clarity about what their goal is and how to get there. Christians should not be that way. We should be mentally alert and sober. Lesson number eight, God calls his children to resemble him in holiness. This is an idea original with God. This is not some deep-thinking philosopher coming up with this idea saying, you know what, God is holy, and we are God's children, so we should be holy. I've connected the dots. We should be holy. No, this is God's idea. He's the one who said it. And not just once, four times in the book of Leviticus, he, he tells his, the people of Israel, be holy because I am holy. And Peter says, that applies to Christians. And here are the verses again where Peter says it. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. So in this context, he's talking about obedience, not conforming to the old way of life, which was before we were God's children, we did pretty much whatever we wanted. And thirdly, he's talking about conduct. In all our conduct, we should be holy. So if we want God to be our father and we be his children and have all the rewards that go with that. Our part of the covenant is to be holy like he is. And so that means earnest repentance of sin because we will still sin. It also means heartfelt obedience. And I think what can happen easily with a command like this, be holy for I am holy, is we, we see that and we're like, wow, well, we're never going to be as holy as God and, and just kind of dismiss it then because it's seems um, just so far out there. But, of course, we're not going to be as holy as God is. But we can still be, we can still live a pattern of life that has some resemblance to God, our Father. We should live, we should have, a, adopt a pattern of life, respond to people, show God's love and mercy share God's truth, um, live holy lives. That's how we can resemble God, and, and, and um, I think that's how we can live out this command. We need to take this command seriously. <clears throat> we need to strive to be holy as our Father is. Lesson number nine is Christians should think soberly about the future judgment. Peter says, you call God Father, then that implies that you know something about God, that you know him. And the, and the thing you should know is that God will reward each one according to his works, and he will do it impartially. So at the end, he's going to reward each one according to his works impartially. And it's not going to matter then, you know, we could say, Lord, Lord, all we want. But if we've not been living that way, you know, he's not going to be partial toward us because we called him Lord, Lord, or because we, yeah, did other certain things. If our lives were inconsistent, 
If our works don't measure up, we're going to be lacking. He's going to judge us according to our works. Romans 2.6 says, He will render to each one according to his deeds. And he wraps up that section, verse 11, by saying, There is no partiality with God. So you, <clears throat> you can't call yourself a Christian and, and live for yourself then and then think you're going to be okay in the end because you held certain beliefs to be true and you said certain things and so on. Uh, we, need to, we need to be sober about this. Um, and of course, here's the, the wonderful truth is, even at the end when we are judged according to our works, I believe that repentance, when we repent of our sins, that God's forgiveness strikes them from the record. And so that's the wonderful truth that Christians have going for them. That The word Peter uses here is, it is fear. <clears throat> but uh, I don't think he's talking about a spiritual anxiety. I think he's talking about a sobriety. Um, you know, we are supposed to be joyful people also. And I don't think we need to, uh, I think we can have confidence about the day of judgment. I think John says that in letter First John. But um, at the same time, we should be sober as we think about the judgment and, and uh, the fact that God is, is going to measure us by our deeds. Closely connected with this, with this teaching of Peter's is the idea of just how costly our ransom is. We were redeemed with something extremely precious. And um, so we need to live in a way that honors that and um, shows that it has been effective in our lives. So the lesson number nine was Christians should think soberly about the future judgment. So those are my nine lessons from 1 Peter, verses 1 through 21. And so my conclusion, which is fairly short, is just this, that we are pilgrims. We are on a journey. We have so much going for us. So, therefore, let's be faithful, let's be mentally alert, let's be sober, let's be holy in our conduct. And may God bless you and help us all.